This is episode 249 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is brought to you completely free by the support of our patrons. Access the complete back catalog of episodes and contribute directly to programming when you sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Alan Stewart, author of Shakespeare's Letters. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And the one that I grow is the spring one, which is allegedly a male mandrake. And for me in England, in my part of Northamptonshire, the flowers come up sort of late April and they look rather like large tomato flowers. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet talks about the shrieking mandrake, while Henry IV and Henry VI use the word mandrake as an insult. These very real plants took on legendary qualities due in part to the chemicals in their makeup, which makes them useful for anesthetics. Our guest this week is an expert in historical plants and historical methods of growing them, and we're delighted this week to welcome Michael Brown to the show, the self-styled historic gardener, to share with us about the history of mandrakes. Michael Brown is a retired head gardener and college lecturer in horticulture who now runs the website Historic Gardener in the UK. He is the author of multiple books on gardening through history, including A Guide to Medieval Gardens, Gardens in the Age of Chivalry. As a historian, Michael provides talks, displays, and advice on gardening through history from the Romans to the modern times and provides history consultation for the National Trust and English Heritage Sites. Learn more about his work and explore other historic plants at the links provided in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hello, Cassidy. Are mandrakes native to England? Uh, No, certainly not. They live in the Middle East and in parts of Europe. And the chances are they probably came over with monks, possibly, and perhaps other plant plant people. But even today, it's quite a rare plant. We only find it in England in specialist gardens and perhaps some of the botanical gardens. And then a few people like me who have them out of historic interest themselves. So what do mandrakes look like when they're growing? How would we identify one? Um, the one that I grow is the spring one, which is allegedly a male mandrake. And for me in England, in my part of Northamptonshire, the flowers come up sort of late April. And they look rather like large tomato flowers, just above ground level. They're then followed by crinkly leaves that look a little bit like Nicotiana, the tobacco family, which grow about 18 inches high or so. And in a good summer, which for my plant last this year wasn't, they form little f- tomato-like fruits, which start off green and then go sort of yellow. There is then an autumn flowering one, which they call the female mandrake, which has purplish flowers, and would have been flowering about late August September time. 
And then when you dig the roots up, they fork a little bit and they're supposed to look like people. What were mandrakes used for during Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, they were allegedly an aphrodisiac, but many aphrodisiacs are toxic, so that explains that one. Uh, The Bible says they were good for female fertility, but a lot of the time it was a painkiller. You can afford it because it's very expensive. Because, of course, the story that most people know is that when you pull a mandrake out, it screams, and if you hear it scream, well, that's it, you're going to die or go completely bonkers, which not surprise somewhat. So at least John Ardern, the 14th century surgeon, contemporary with Chaucer, he says that you make up a mixture, give it to your patient, it will knock him out, and you can cut him with iron, and he won't feel anything. And then to bring them round, if they don't wake up, you have a sponge soaked with very strong vinegar, which you hold under their nose to act as a sort of smelling salt. And this was, was this actually used, or was he writing about this as a proposal, or... Did doctors actually keep mandrakes? He he was working as a prof- professional doctor. He did things that he spoke about, and he came up with several different treatments. So I should think the chances are he was actually using it. Okay, so you've you've identified that sometimes it was thought of as a poison. Other times it was thought of for fertility and even pain medicine. So was it ever used... As an edible plant, I mean, people that grow it today, is it something that you can eat or is it actually poisonous? Well, you can eat anything. It's what happens next that's the problem. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is toxic. But then think most of our painkillers today are you know, opium. That's the commonest uh, painkiller we have today. And in the wrong dosages, that's fatal, as is the mandrake. And there was a case recently in Italy, oh, it was only a few weeks ago, where a company that bagged up uh, spinach leaves for salad bags inadvertently got mandrake leaves muddled up with it. And um, people got very ill. One of them was seriously ill, but I think they all recovered. And similar things have happened before. So it's not something you should go around taking willy-nilly. I have seen one or two people selling it as a spiritual plant, as they put it, which means you can get high on it, but get it wrong. You won't be doing it again. So it's something to be to be careful with. And I assume the people oh, yes. that you mentioned growing it at the botanical gardens or that you grow it yourself is more of a novelty item to say, here's this plant that we've heard about in, in history, as opposed to yeah. having a practical purpose. Yeah, they, they usually tell you what it was used for in our botanic gardens. And the, of course, it's famous from Harry Potter as well. Absolutely. absolutely. That was a fun part when we were watching that movie. I was like, oh, I know that plant. I've heard about this. Now, yeah. are, are mandrakes used for medicine today? Not that I'm aware of. And probably the reason why we have opiates is it's very easy to produce poppies. Mandrakes, you need a root that's about three years old to have a decent, be decent size for practical use. So I suspect this screaming mandrake story was to scare off people didn't really know what they were doing when they were collecting them. Don't, don't mess with plant. my plants, yeah. <laughs> plants that are too young to be any practical use, so you know, scare them off with st- stories of screaming plants. Now, in many drawings from the 16th century, the roots of the mandrake is drawn as a person. You referred to this earlier, but does the real mandrake root, does it look like a person when you, when you dig it up? I thought it looked kind of like a carrot myself. Yeah, well, the, the mine, yeah, well, they, they have two or three forks and they look vaguely human like. But Gerard, the herbalist, he says, well, they look a bit like people, but no different to carrots. And 
Parkinson later on says carrots and parsnips. So yes, but they, there was a fake trade in mandrakes. And that's a very common weed in England called white bryony, which has a long carrot-like root, very large. And Gerard says that unscrupulous persons would dig it up, carve it into a man's shape, push grass seed into the top, rebury it, grow it on. The grass grows and dies. You dig up the roots. You now have a root that looks, how most people think a mandrake ought to appear, complete with a shaggy head of hair. Oh, so it was <laughs> it was a con game. I see how this yes. is. <laughs> it's still going on in the 1600s because Parkin talks about Parkinson talks about it again. So it was obviously a fairly common dodge. And mandrakes were popular as good luck charms as much as anything else. So white briony was a good alternative. So would people would people keep around they would they would just carry a mandrake around as as a good or, luck charm? Or perhaps have it in the house, really where it okay. wouldn't get damaged, because after all, it's fairly expensive. Um, I've dug up a few white briny ones so you can show people, and they, they look fairly weird sometimes anyway without any additional help. But it's a very common weed in England, so it's easy to produce. E- easy to have this going on, yeah. Mm. Well, I know we would love to explore the history of mandrakes further, and especially the idea of being able to grow them ourselves. I'm fascinated about this. So what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to to learn more, to be able to see real ones, and, and perhaps even grow some ourselves? Well, uh, for all the people in the States, I suppose, the Cloisters Museum is the one place I know which definitely grows it. Uh, I suspect it probably flowers in the spring, much as it does here. For proper information, perhaps some of the original early herbals are the best, although later herbals still carry on uh, mentioning it. So Gerard's Herbal, which I've given you the website link, that's well worth reading. Um, talks about the mandrakes. Really, it's uh, Casey, I think you're perhaps trying to grow your own. I've seen internet sites in America selling the plants, uh, but it's it's a bit finicky and it dies down quite early in the year. So it's nothing spectacular. In fact, if you grew it and just left it then, people would probably ignore it. Now, you mentioned the Cloisters Museum. I'm assuming you mean Cloisters at the Met in New York? Yes. Okay. So that would be where to go and see it here. Now, you grow them, you mentioned. So is the Historic Gardener a place that people can, can visit? Do you do presentations that people can check out? I do talks and I have you know, some displays on historical gardening, but the one in the garden is just my garden. So, and I say it's not a particularly fa- um, interesting plant to look at. It looks a little bit like a dock leaf sort of idea. So it's nothing spectacular. It doesn't even grow very high. And it all flops and dies away by the end of June. So. so it's amazing for such a for such a boring looking plant to have such a wild and fantastic legend associated with it. I guess yes. it, it needed its reputation to have a little bit more carriage to it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, it's one of those ones that's had. I suppose it's the mandrake properties that really have made it famous, rather than the look of the plant, and it's all got built up over the centuries. I expect. Now, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Right. Well, I'd go for the Canterbury Tales, because it will keep you quiet for quite some time. The other thing that you obviously haven't heard 
is we are also allowed to take some luxury item along as well. Okay, well, I'll have to update that, yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll take my um, bagpipes with me. Oh, that's an excellent choice. You'd be well set up there with both of those. That's a nice, happy way to spend it, I think. Now, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, Mandrake self was mentioned in my first book, Death in the Garden. Uh, There's currently a book out called The Guide to Medieval Gardens, Gardens in the Age of Chivalry. And next year, somewhere around Marchish time, I think, uh, the Guide to Medieval Plant Use is coming out. And that will talk about how plants were used in the medieval period, generally, rather than going through plant by plant. That sounds really exciting. We will link to Michael's books so you can check out the ones that are published now and you can look forward to the publication of his next book coming up in March. Michael Brown, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of mandrakes. This has been a really fun conversation. Right. Thank you very much, Cassidy. Bye. If you liked our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and review on the platform you're listening from today. To access bonus history about the mandrakes, including some of the 16th century drawings of the screaming plant that we mentioned today, be sure to check out the show notes. There's bonus history content and direct links to both Michael and the resources he recommends for you today, all packed in at CassidyCash.com slash episode 249. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP249. I want to send a big thank you to our patrons who make this show possible. That Shakespeare Life is available each week to listen completely free anywhere in the world. And we make the show available without any commercials. And that's all thanks to the support of our patrons who help keep us on the air. We do have to pay for things here at the show. And our options were to bring in sponsors or to ask our listeners to help support the show. And you really stepped up and you are signing up to be patrons. And that is every day helping us fund the show and get connected with guests and bring you excellent history interviews here each week. And I just want to say thank you. We really appreciate your support. If you love the history you learn about here each week and want to have a hand in contributing directly to our show, you can sign up to be a patron today. We have three levels of support available, all with different degrees of involvement in the making of our show, from helping us stay stocked in our favorite tea to actually having a hand in helping us craft the questions we ask um, for each of our topics. So there's a plenty of ways to have a hand in the making of our show and you can sign up to support us and have a hand in the making of the show at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.